All right, we're here and we're going to review movement disorders. Uh, and I'm here with Dr. Sarah Schaefer, uh, who's an assistant professor of neurology in our department. Uh, thanks for coming to talk about movement disorders and talking about the high yield uh, things that residents can uh, review uh, for various examinations. Absolutely. All right, Sarah, we're going to start. I'm just going to give a quick rundown of the things we're going to talk about. Uh, I think this being a movement disorders uh, discussion, we're going to start talking about Parkinson's disease and really the high yield aspects of Parkinson's disease in terms of medical knowledge. Then we'll move on to the Parkinson's plus syndromes and compare and contrast those with Parkinson's disease. Spend a bit of time on Huntington disease, uh, a bit of time at drug induced movement disorders, some time on tremor of various types, a little bit about uh, movement disorders in sleep, specifically REM behavior disorder and restless leg syndrome. A bit about dystonia, and then we'll finish with a, with a grab bag, some things that commonly come up on examinations and, and are good for residents to be aware of and can, can maybe read about in the future. So, Sarah, uh, we're going to start with, with Parkinson's disease. Can you outline your clinical approach, uh, your, your overall approach to defining the clinical features of Parkinson's disease? Sure. So, uh, you know, coming back to Parkinsonism, which can be found in Parkinson's disease and other uh, things that can cause Parkinsonism, you know, that's basically defined by the presence of three things. Bradykinesia, which is a slowness or smallness of movements, and that's tested in a number of ways that I, that I can go over. Rigidity, which is an increase in tone that is different from spasticity. Spasticity is upper motor neuron in etiology and, and, um, and, when you move the limb at a higher velocity, it uh, it tends to catch as opposed to rigidity that is a you know more smoothly um, increased tone, not depending so much on the velocity of the movement. And then the third thing is rest tremor. So not just tremor, but a tremor when the body part is relaxed. And we often see that in the hands, but it can also be present in the legs and in the jaw and uh, usually starts, um, all of these symptoms usually start more on one side than the other in just regular Parkinson's disease. And so when I see a patient, I look at all of the different things on the exam that denote bradykinesia. So that's actually a lot of things, both formally tested and not formally tested. You are looking at their facial expression, if they have a masked face or hypomimia, if they have hypophonia, which is a decrease in focal volume, if they're not swinging their arms very well when they walk, if they're taking small steps when they walk, that's all bradykinesia or slowness or smallness of movements. And then formally, we test it by having them do repetitive movements such as tapping their fingers or tapping their toes to look for not just slowness and smallness of the movements, but actually a decrement over time. So they may start big and fast and then over time get smaller and slower um, if you have them do it enough times. And generally we have them do each repetitive movement at least 10 times. And so um, you don't have to have all of these in order to have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. There are plenty of patients who don't have a rest tremor, for example, and that doesn't mean they don't have Parkinson's disease, but you're looking at all of these in order to determine if there's some Parkinsonism present. And just uh, to highlight a couple of things that uh, uh, often come up and, and learners really have to know how to emphasize 
the difference between rigidity and spasticity is about the velocity that you passively move the, uh, the limbs, as you said. So rigidity is velocity independent. Spasticity is usually velocity dependent, and there's a catch. And I would say uh, uh, rigidity is an extra pyramidal problem, and spasticity is a pyramidal problem. It's an upper motor neuron problem. Um, and, and the second thing, and I think this is really important and does come up on examinations, uh, classic idiopathic Parkinson's disease should be asymmetric, right? Yeah, classically, it is asymmetric. And, you know, sometimes patients do come to us, um, especially if they have a kinetic rigid Parkinson's disease, meaning that they have a lot of slowness and stiffness without a lot of rest tremor. A lot of these patients come to us with bilateral symptoms just because it wasn't caught um, early because uh, a tremor is far more obvious both to the patient and to clinicians. Um, but usually it's still asymmetrical at the onset. And that helps differentiate between some of the other things like drug-induced Parkinsonism or vascular Parkinsonism that tend to be a bit more symmetrical. Can you talk us through some of the other associated clinical features of Parkinson's disease outside of the motor features that you've described? Oh, absolutely. This is a giant category. So, um, you know, there are basically every system of the body that you can think of can be affected in Parkinson's disease. And, um, you know, a big grouping is the autonomic nervous system. So constipation is very common, urinary issues, urinary frequency, urgency, um, and uh, orthostatic hypotension. So blood pressure drops when they stand up. They're often feeling a little lightheaded when they stand up. Uh, drooling is very common, so increased salivation. And then, you know, uh, moving on to some other things, uh, sleep disruption, sleep fragmentation, um, REM sleep behavior disorder, which is acting out your dreams. You know, normally you're paralyzed when you're in REM sleep, but in Parkinson's disease, that paralysis can go away and they can talk and thrash around in their, in their, uh, in their sleep. I've had patients tell me that they wake up because they're in the middle of their bedroom floor doing a karate kick in the air. Um, and things like that. Um, and other than that, uh, psychiatric issues as well, anxiety, depression, which, you know, obviously there's a huge overlap between psychiatric disease and dopamine issues. And so uh, you can uh, see why that may be the case as well. Great. And let's move on uh, to pharmacological treatment. What's your approach to teaching the, the pharmacological options uh, for Parkinson's disease? Well, I sort of categorize the medications in terms of, you know, their mechanisms of action. So there are dopamine sort of, there's dopamine replacement, which is levodopa or carbidopa levodopa, which is cinnamet. Um, and so levodopa is the dopamine replacement and carbidopa has been added so that it, it decreases the amount that the levodopa is broken down in the periphery before it gets to the brain. Basically, you know, when levodopa first came out, they were giving patients just levodopa. You know, some tiny percentage was actually getting into their brain and the rest was being broken down in the body and causing terrible nausea. And then carbidopa was added to make carbidopa levodopa and more was getting to the brain. It was more effective. Patients weren't quite as nauseous. And that's actually why it's called cinnamet uh, without emesis. And so that's, you know, direct dopamine replacement. And then there are 
medications that act on dopamine in other ways, like dopamine agonists that directly act at dopamine receptors. And examples of those are rapinirol as well as um, pramipexol is another one. There's a patch called a new pro patch that's also used. And then there's a, a group of medications that are used to decrease the breakdown of dopamine in the brain in order to maximize the amount of dopamine that hangs around for as long as possible. So entacapone or tolcopone, the, the capones are examples of those. They are COMT inhibitors. And, um, and the MAOIs as well, selegiline, resagiline are selective MAOIs that decrease the breakdown of dopamine in the brain. And then there are a couple of other medications that have sort of mixed mechanisms of action or anticholinergic mechanisms of action that don't, you know, necessarily do a lot with dopamine, but also can help with Parkinson's symptoms such as amantadine and uh, trihexyphenidyl or artane. And for the for the resident level, uh, so getting introduced to initiating treatment of uh, uh, Parkinson's disease, is there sort of a general approach depending on the patient uh, that that's a generally accepted approach to starting pharmacological therapy? I mean, you've listed a huge number of uh, medications. To be honest, there's a an enormous amount of variability person to person. You know, some people go straight to Cinemet, uh, the carbidopa levodopa, because it is really the most effective of the medications. Other people, you know, might uh, give uh, an MAOI uh, like selegiline or resagiline first, but, you know, it's not a robust medication, but it can sometimes give people a little bit uh, of effect and, and, and then you can, you know, delay some of these other medications that might cause more side effects. Um, if you take five movement disorder specialists and give them the same patient, they're probably, um, you know, all going to start something different in a different way, actually. <laughs> Great. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about the common complications of pharmacological therapy, the things that tend to come up and, and residents re really need to know about, about some of these drugs? Sure. So we can start with uh, levodopa. Um, the main side effects of that are nausea, you know, as we kind of discussed already. And then um, it can worth, worsen orthostatic hypotension. So if a patient is already significantly orthostatic, symptomatically so, we might want to correct that before we start uh, levodopa therapy. And then at higher doses or in patients who are particularly at risk uh, because of emerging dementia or other things, um, high, uh, or increased age, it can cause confusion, hallucinations, those types of things. Um, the uh, dopamine agonists have a really strange set of side effects that you have to ask patients about at every visit. They can cause impulsive and compulsive behaviors. So patients can start, you know, gambling away all their savings or overeating or having uh, uh, compulsive sexual activity or other things that, you know, they may not necessarily associate with the medication. And therefore, it's really important to ask the patient about it every visit. And then the other thing is sleep attacks. So these are particularly um, found in patients on dopamine agonists, but um, it can also be found in Parkinson's in general and on other medications. But basically what it is, is in, in 
uh, a uh, compulsion to sleep, to fall asleep that you cannot control. And so you can imagine that that would be very dangerous potentially, especially if somebody's driving or something like that. And so you want to counsel patients that if they ever have a, a time when they fall asleep in a, in a, a time when they normally would not have, such as having a conversation with someone that they need to let you know right away so that you can lower or stop that medication. And, um, and then, you know, the only other thing that I would, uh, I would mention, I mean, the anticholinergics have anticholinergic side effects. So confusion, dry mouth, urinary retention, all that stuff. Um, and then the MAOIs, you know, we get warnings all the time about the MAOIs interacting with other serotonergic medications. But in fact, the MAOIs that we use for Parkinson's are pretty selective in terms of their activity. They're MAOB inhibitors as opposed to non-selective MAOIs. And so the risk of serotonin syndrome with these medications is actually extremely low. Yeah. So I guess the monoamines include serotonin and dopamine, right? Right. Um, and can you run us through uh, surgical treatment? I, I realize this is a hugely complicated and also uh, nuanced topic, uh, but but maybe just run through some of the surgical treatment options that are available and, and when those would be considered for somebody with Parkinson's disease. Sure. So the big one is deep brain stimulation. And, you know, there are some other things that are less invasive that are that we use for other uh, movement disorders that are kind of coming down the pike for Parkinson's disease. But the big one is deep brain stimulation. And basically what we do is we put electrodes into the basal ganglia of Parkinson's patients. And in Parkinson's, generally our targets are either the STN, so the subthalamic nucleus, or the GPI, the globus pallidus interna. And if you look at your basal ganglia, anatomy, you can actually sort of understand how disrupting those two um, areas or one of those two areas could lead to um, a increase in um, thalamic output to the motor system. Um, and the the electrodes attached to a battery that goes under the skin like a pacemaker in the chest wall. And we use all kinds of parameters to um, to change voltage and things like that in order to impact the contralateral symptoms in these patients. And we're generally thinking about this in patients, you know, we used to wait a long time, actually, uh, probably too long to think about DBS in these patients. And we're starting to think about it a little bit earlier because of how effective it is. And, um, we think about it in patients who are having a lot of motor fluctuations. So where the medications are, um, you know, they're kicking in quickly and then wearing off quickly. And when they're on, they have a lot of extra movements or dyskinesias that are bothersome. Um, and when they're off, they can't move. They're frozen. They're very rigid. They're, they're, you know, very stiff. Um, and, and they're taking their medicines many times a day and we're just not um, able to give them the quality of life that they want. That That's a huge category of patients we think about DBS in. And another big category that we think about it in is patients who have tremor that is not responding to the medications, which can happen. Some people's tremor responds quite well to medicines and others uh, do not. And so the, those patients are generally good DBS candidates. 
And the people for whom we're not thinking about DBS are people who are demented or very elderly. Um, we're, we're thinking um, a little bit more critically about whether we want to put brain leads in those patients. Great. Um, can we talk briefly about pathology? What do, what do residents need to know about pathology? What are the sort of highlights, high-yield uh, buzzwords uh, we will see on examinations? So uh, basically, you know, they're in movement disorders, the big two are synucleinopathies and tauopathies, right? And Parkinson's is a synucleinopathy. It's um, related to alpha-synuclein alpha deposition in the brain in the form of Lewy bodies. So um, I, I bet you can guess what another um, alpha-synucleinopathy is, Lewy body dementia, right, or Lewy body disease. Um, and uh, the other alpha-synucleinopathy is um, multiple systems atrophy, which I guess we'll talk about in a little more detail in a bit. Um, and then there are tauopathies, which are um, the frontotemporal dementia is a tauopathy, which is not strictly a movement disorders issue, but it is, in fact, a tauopathy. And then progressive supranuclear palsy or PSP is as well as well as uh, corticobasal syndrome or corticobasal degeneration. And so uh, Lewy bodies, just uh, for the residents who are listening, are uh, small eosinophilic spherical cytoplasmic inclusions. So they they look pinkish on a on an H and E stain. So if if people are looking at a pathological specimen and they see neurons with these pinkish spherical, they almost look like they have a little bit of a halo around them. And then sometimes you'll see them with alpha synuclein stains. So there is a, a immunohistochemical stain that you can see, and they look dark on that. But they're in the cytoplasm. They're almost perfectly round, and they're a little spherical, which makes them look like they have <coughs> a um, halo around them. And in Parkinson's, I guess we see them in a few different places, the, the brainstem, uh, the substantia nigra uh, in the brainstem, and then also in, in uh, some of the basal ganglia. And, and you can also see them in hippocampal neurons, and that's, I guess, what, what produces uh, uh, dementia with Lewy bodies. Um, and briefly, what are, what are some common genetic syndromes associated with Parkinson's disease that, uh, that residents need to know about? Well, there, there isn't, uh, there aren't genes that are, you know, completely penetrant in Parkinson's that we've been able to identify the way that we have in Huntington's and things like that. But there are a few genes um, that increase the likelihood of developing Parkinson's and that can cause familial Parkinson's disease. So, um, LARC2, L-R-R-K2 is one of those genes. GBA, which actually uh, a homozygous mutation for uh, GBA causes Gaucher's disease, but a heterozygous mutation for GBA can increase the risk of Parkinson's disease. And then um, Part, there's a PARC gene, P-A-R-K. I'm sure that's going to, you know, pretty easy to remember that that's related to Parkinson's and can, can cause young onset Parkinson's. Um, and, you know, there are innumerable other ones that have been identified that increase the risk as well. All right, we'll move on to Parkinson's plus syndromes. And, and I, I see this as a quick snapper. How do you organize your thoughts so that residents can learn about the Parkinson's plus syndromes uh, quickly? 
Well, so, you know, we've already talked a little bit about the first stratification, which is tauopathy versus synucleinopathy. So again, the synucleinopathies are um, it, Parkinson's disease, Lewy body disease, and multiple systems atrophy. Um, and then the tauopathies are progressive supranuclear palsy and um, and uh, corticobasal degeneration. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the clinical aspects of these, you, you know, a lot of these diseases are characterized by um, features that can happen in Parkinson's, but that happen earlier in these other diseases and that happen to a much greater degree um, in these other diseases. For example, Lewy body uh, disease is characterized by visual hallucinations, um, often of people, animals, things like that, but all kinds of visual hallucinations. And those um, uh, those can happen in Parkinson's um, and can be, you know, exacerbated by medications. And you know, uh, patients with Parkinson's can can absolutely develop dementia, but that's generally after a number of years, as opposed to Lewy body disease, where it's starting much earlier. Lewy body also has some other features such as um, uh, fluctuations in um, a level of alertness. So they can have decreases in level of alertness lasting, you know, anywhere from minutes to hours to days really that, that can mimic seizures or strokes even. And they're also classically very sensitive to neuroleptic medications. So they become extraordinarily Parkinsonian when they're given a little bit of um, antipsychotic dopamine blockade, um, which which they're given, um, which they may be given, you know, because they're having hallucinations and paranoia. So um, that can be a good clue for Lewy body. And then, you know, for multiple systems atrophy, um, if you see Parkinsonism plus cerebellar features plus dysmetria, ataxia, you're definitely thinking about multiple systems atrophy, and those things are not really seen in idiopathic Parkinson's disease. But the other, um, the other thing that um, that MSA often has is profound autonomic instability. So orthostatic hypotension, which you can see in Parkinson's, but to the point of syncope or presyncope, huge fluctuations in blood pressure such that when they're lying down, they're in the 240s. And when they're standing up, they're in the 80s systolic, um, uh, as well as, you know, urinary retention to the point of needing a catheterization or constipation that is, you know, causing significant problems. So these types of very profound and very early uh, autonomic dysfunctions. And when you talk about PSP or progressive supranuclear palsy, the feature that can overlap with Parkinson's is falls and retropulsion. So meaning that the patient sort of spontaneously lists backwards and will fall. And this is something that we see later in Parkinson's, but generally falls are not something that's happening in the first couple years of a Parkinson's disease um, uh, manifestation. Whereas in PSP, it, it happens much earlier. Um, and they have eye movement abnormalities as well. You know, the, the supernuclear aspect of progressive supernuclear palsy is that it's above the level of the, of the, um, cranial nuclei. And so 
cranial nerves three, four, and six work. And if you do oculocephalics early on on these patients, they're normal. But when they're voluntarily trying to make a saccade, particularly in the vertical direction, they have a great deal of difficulty. And that's because the issue is above the level of the cranial nerves in, um, in the midbrain area. And then finally, we get to corticobasal uh, syndrome, which is um, the clinical corticobasal degeneration. So, you know, they've made it so that corticobasal degeneration is uh, uh, used the word degeneration if it's pathologically diagnosed on autopsy. And that's because corticobasal syndrome, which is what we call these people when they're alive, um, on autopsy can often be seen to be um, a lot of other different things like PSP. Um, so they sort of um, overlap and, and um, mimic each other. But, you know, that's a little bit of a side note. Corticobasal syndrome, when we talk about these patients, what they classically have is unilateral um, cortical signs. So this is related to cortical atrophy, particularly often in the parietal region of the brain. And so they develop apraxia, they develop um, stereognosis, which is when they're unable to tell what an object is in their hand, and graphesthesia as well, which is uh, when they're unable to tell if, uh, if their eyes are closed and you're trying to write a number in their hand, that they, um, that they can't tell what it is on the affected side. And they can get other cortical signs such as aphasia and things like that. And another thing that um, that often these patients present with is dystonia in the hand that is affected. Um, and uh, so, if you see dystonia on one side in one hand with a little bit of Parkinsonism, um, you should be looking for cortical signs to see if you can try to you know determine if if they're present. So those are the atypical Parkinsonisms, and then there's. Um, another sort of orphan uh, called vascular Parkinsonism, which basically is when somebody has really profound white matter disease from lots of, uh, you know, little strokes and white matter lesions that have accumulated over time in, in patients with vascular risk factors. And these patients tend to develop a little bit more of a symmetrical um a symmetrical uh, exam, um, and they're often their gait is is very affected early on. Um, their legs are stiff; they have more bradykinesia in the legs than in the arms, um, and gait is often the the first thing that they notice and complain about. Um, and obviously, the MRI can be helpful, or a, a brain imaging can be helpful to make that diagnosis. So just to run down the big uh, five uh, Parkinson's plus syndromes. So as you said, uh, two synucleinopathies, and those are dementia with Lewy bodies or Lewy body disease and multiple systems atrophy. And Lewy body disease, the thing people have to remember is prominent cognitive symptoms, hallucinations, sensitivity to neuroleptics, and these prolonged periods of uh, uh, unresponsiveness that remain unexplained and can almost look like seizures. And then for multiple systems atrophy, uh, autonomic symptoms and cerebellar symptoms uh, uh, would be the big uh, keys. Yeah. And then uh, there are two tauopathies, and those are cortical basal syndrome and progressive supranuclear palsy. And again, to review, cortical basal syndrome, really, uni uh, really unilateral, asymmetric, uh, and you can have prominent 
uh, strange motor features like dystonia, stimulus, sensitive myoclonus, and then sensory, sort of higher level sensory things like stereognosis, graphesthesia, those sorts of things. And then PSP, as you said, early falls, axial rigidity, uh, eye movement abnormalities, cognitive impairment. Uh, mm -hmm. Would that be a reasonable summary? Yep, definitely. And then if you if you look at the imaging of all of these things and you think about what they're actually presenting with, the imaging generally makes quite a bit of sense. Um, so for um, for corticobasal syndrome, for example, the imaging often shows unilateral cortical atrophy, obviously on the uh, contralateral side of the symptoms that you're seeing on the exam. And, and that's what you would expect based on the cortical symptoms that you're finding in those patients. Whereas progressive supranuclear palsy classically has midbrain atrophy. Um, you may have heard of the hummingbird sign, which is on a mid-sagittal uh, cut of the midbrain, you can see uh, the midbrain, it thins out superiorly and looks like a hummingbird's head and beak. Um, and you could see how that would be the case with the supranuclear palsy because um, the midbrain is above the level of the cranial nerve nuclei that move the eyes. And, and that's where the dysfunction is in these patients. And then in MSA, you can see cerebellar atrophy, um, you know, along with the cerebellar features on exam. And then the other, the other thing that we look for is in the pons, um, there's, uh, T2 hyperintensities in a cross. So a vertical line and a horizontal line that makes the uh, pawns on an axial view look like a hot cross bun. And so it's called the hot cross bun sign. Um, there isn't really much specific on uh, on brain imaging for uh, on MRI or anything for Lewy body disease, however. All right, let's move on to Huntington's disease. Uh, can you speak a little bit about uh, the genetics of Huntington's disease? This is something that's actually well worked out uh, and uh, a lot is known about it. And, and uh, it's something that does come up on examinations. Yep. So it's a it's a trinucleotide repeat of CAG, CAG repeat on chromosome four. Because it's a trinucleotide repeat disorder, the genetics are um, uh, demonstrate anticipation. So with subsequent generations, the manifestations are generally um, at a younger age based on in part, the number of um, trinucleotide repeats that that patient has, and it is um, it's uh, an autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance. And uh, and the gene is Huntington uh, gene, I think. Yes, Huntington T I N at the end. Um, uh, that makes the Huntington protein, um, and so when uh, with the abnormal gene, it makes a mutant hunting Huntington protein. All right. Um, tell us about the motor and non-motor features of Huntington's disease. Uh, some of us know about chorea, but there are other things I guess we need to know about. Oh, absolutely. So chorea is, you know, the, the most common thing that people think of with Huntington's disease, which is... Um, is sort of a writhing, flowing movement um, uh, that goes through the body. Um, Huntington's patients can also have quite a bit of Parkinsonism, especially late in disease or, or the, you know, the patients that have 
very high numbers of trinucleotide repeats and develop the disease um, when they're very young, like in their teens, um, uh, tend to have more Parkinsonism uh, as part of it. Um, along with the chorea is something called motor impersistence, which is you could think of it as like negative chorea. It's basically um, like a, a pathological relaxation um, and then, and then compensating back. So, so we see that we test this in a couple of different ways in the office. Um, we test tongue protrusion um, in persistence, which is when uh, we ask the patient to stick their tongue out and hold it out for at least 10 seconds. And these patients will retract their tongue back into their mouth because the tongue is relaxing um, and unable to maintain that um, that outward position. And then the other thing uh, we often do is have them grip our hands um, or grip uh, our fingers, and we feel for a, a, a relaxation of the hand, um, and that's called a milkmaid's grip. So those are some of the motor features. And then in terms of non-motor features, um, there is a, you know a huge cognitive component to Huntington's disease. So they have progressive dementia, and then there's a uh, often a very significant psychiatric component that can range all the way from depression or anxiety, all the way up to frank psychosis, hallucinations, aggression, um, and those types of things. Um, what, what are the characteristics findings on neuroimaging? So the classic characteristic finding is caudate atrophy, um, and you'll see bi bilateral caudate atrophy. So if you look at the head of the caudate on an axial view, um, the head of the caudate goes right up against the um, anterior horns of the lateral ventricles. And so as the caudate atrophies, the lateral ventricles start to bow out um, in that area. Um, and in addition to uh, those features, we also see sort of a general atrophying of the cortex uh, as the dementia develops. I, I had learned the term boxcar ventricles. I know that's something you hadn't used, but basically the, the ventricles are rectangular in shape because the contour is lost after the, caudate, the head of the caudate uh, atrophies. Right. Um, and then uh, what, what options do we have for treatment of uh, people with Huntington's disease? So right now we're mostly uh, we're basically treating symptomatically so that often involves psychiatric medications um in terms of treating the chorea um there are a couple of things that we use for dopamine blockade so so you know going back to parkinson's which is a, a relative dopamine deficiency the hallmark of parkinson's disease is hypokinesis so patients are slow they're not moving as much and we give them dopamine back in uh, huntington's disease because of the caudate being affected um, initially in terms of the basal ganglia circuitry and everything what we end up is with actual um, increased output from the thalamus um, to the motor pathways and a hyperkinetic movement disorder, which is the chorea. And so, um, so the natural response to that would be to block dopamine. And that's exactly what we do. We use um, uh, tetrabenazine and, and its cousins do tetrabenazine and valbenazine to block, uh, 
to block the dopamine and treat the chorea. And we also sometimes concurrently um, use antipsychotic medications, um, uh, which have dopamine blockade um, and can be helpful in these patients, especially if there is concurrent, uh, if there are concurrent psychotic symptoms. So again, to summarize, probably the things that people need to know about Huntington's disease are that it's a trinucleotide repeat disorder, it's omnisomal dominant, uh, it has anticipation uh, because it's a tri uh, trinucleotide repeat disorder, and you said it's uh, CAG repeats uh, in chromosome 4, is that right? Yep. Um, and, uh, and the gene that uh, is encoded is Huntington gene. Uh, you see caudate atrophy uh, on MRI, which gives you these large box-shaped ventricles. Uh, and, uh, and we need to know about motor and, and non-motor features, uh, including psychiatric features. And the treatment is dopamine depletion uh, or dopamine blockade, as you said. So, Sarah, I wanted uh, to ask you about uh, some common drug-induced movement disorders and the types of things that come up on examinations uh, when it relates to drug-induced movement disorders. Yeah, so there are a number of very similar disorders, um, one of which is neuroleptic malignant syndrome. There's also serotonin syndrome, Parkinson, uh, Parkinson's hyperpyrexia syndrome. These can all look very similar in terms of the patient uh, being febrile, being confused, um, being stiff, and um, really a medication history is extremely important. Obviously, neuroleptic malignant syndrome is caused by neuroleptics, so dopamine blockade. Serotonin syndrome is caused by excessive serotonergic medications, so often multiple um, psychiatric medications such as SSRIs, trazodone, that kind of thing can induce serotonin syndrome. And then Parkinsonism hyperpyrexia syndrome is actually a dopamine withdrawal syndrome where a Parkinson's patient has been abruptly stopped um, on their uh, dopaminergic medications and they develop something that looks a lot like uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which makes quite a bit of sense actually if you think about it. Um, because neuroleptic malignant syndrome is caused by dopamine blockade and Parkinson hyperpyrexia syndrome is caused by dopamine withdrawal. And, um, you know, there are some things that, that help you clinically to differentiate between them. Um, hyperreflexia and myoclonus, you're seeing a little bit more in the serotonin syndrome patients. Um, and I believe that, um, you know, really high CK, uh, LFT elevations and things like that are more likely in neuroleptic malignant syndrome. But really what's helping you the most is the medication history. And what about treatment? So how are these treated? So you recognize one of these disorders, you get take a good medication history, you're worried about this syndrome. Uh, how do you go about treating the different ones? Well, the, I mean, the, the first and foremost thing for all of them is to identify what medication change or medications led to the issue. So in the case of Parkinson hyperpyrexia syndrome, that's a dopamine withdrawal. And so you want to give them their dopamine back. Uh, in the case of neuroleptic malignant syndrome or serotonin syndrome, those are because of you know, over-treatment with medications. And so those medications need to be removed. Um, and then there's um, a lot of supportive care involved. These patients can develop um, a lot of complications due to their fevers and their 
um, rigidity or, or their, uh, you know, the stiffness. Um, uh, they can get CK elevations that can cause kidney damage. So lots of hydration, those types of things. Um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome can be treated with some medications. Dantrolene is one of the medications that is used for that. Um, you know, some of these patients end up in the ICU as well and, and need um, to be intubated and ventilatory support. Um, you know, but the first and foremost thing is to identify the underlying cause and correct that. And then one last drug induced uh, um, movement disorder that I did want to talk about was, was uh, long term side effects of antipsychotic medications and tardive dyskinesia. So uh, this does come up, and I think there's some emerging data about treatments for tardive dyskinesia. So can you talk a little bit about the features of this disorder and, and some treatments? Sure. So uh, so just to to talk a little bit about a, a different drug-induced movement disorder that's more acute that um, when somebody is put on dopamine blockade medication. So that includes, by the way, neuroleptics as well as some antiemetic uh, medications that cause dopamine blockade, such as Reglan or metoclopramide. Compazine as well um, has dopamine blockade properties. So acute or long-term use of any of these medications can cause these drug-induced movement disorders. Um, so acutely, you can get acute dystonic reactions. So um, that can be um, uh neck dystonia, um, eye dystonia, so oculogyric crisis is eye dystonia. Um, and that kind of acute reaction is treated with either diphenhydramine, so Benadryl, um, IM usually, or benzotropine or cogentin is the other thing that we use. And obviously, the inciting medication needs to be removed in that case. Um, long term, when these patients have been on these medications for months or years, they can develop tardive dyskinesia, which usually starts in the mouth, you know, with tongue movements, lip smacking, things like that, but can also involve the rest of the body and appear sort of like a restlessness. Um, and, uh, uh, and that is difficult to treat. Um, there are medications that we use for Korea, actually, that we talked about earlier that, um, uh, that are actually dopamine blockade medications, which doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it, but there's a, uh, you know, because the dopamine blockade is what's causing this problem. Um, but, um, but we do actually use dopamine blockade medications such as tetrabenazine, dutetrabenazine, and valbenazine. Valbenazine is the longest acting of the of those three, um, and it's uh, it's been approved for use in tardive dyskinesia. Uh, that's also called Ingresa, and um, and then you know there's also akathisia, which is something that can happen either acutely or more long-term with these dopamine blockade medications. And that's um, also appears as sort of a restlessness, but um, these patients are just very uncomfortable. They feel really restless, like they have to get up and walk around all the time, like they're, they're crawling in their skin. Um, and, um, and removal of the offending agent is uh, generally what we do with that just a caveat to that, you do um, have to remove these agents, especially if they've been on them for a long time slowly, because if you removed them abruptly, you can actually make the situation worse. 
All right. Um, so I just wanted to summarize, Sarah, what you told us about um, drug-induced movement disorders. And I think we talked about uh, three different categories. We talked about uh, the more severe uh, critical illness uh, movement disorders. And you uh, mentioned serotonin syndrome, uh, which is uh, overdose of serotonergic agents, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and then Parkinson's uh, hyperpyrexia, which you said is related to basically missing doses of uh, Parkinson's medications. And you mentioned the biggest way to distinguish serotonin from the other two is uh, hyperreflexia and clonus. Uh, those t tend to be helpful, but that eventually it's uh, essentially it's a it's a question of taking a good history and myoclonus. Then moving on. Oh, and myoclonus. Good point. Clonus and myoclonus. Uh, then next, we talked a little bit about acute dystonic reactions, including uh, oculogyric crisis, which can be related to dopamine blocking agents, uh, antiemetics or neuroleptics. Uh, and those are treated with um, uh, with uh, uh, benztropine, uh, an anticholinergic medication, uh, or they can be treated with antihistamines. And then you mentioned long-term, uh, that with long-term use of dopamine blocking medications, you can get tardive dyskinesia. And that dopamine depleting drugs uh, like valbenazine have actually been uh, approved for the treatment of those. And that's probably all our residents need to know uh, for the purposes of an examination about these topics. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to tremor. And uh, I think something that comes up is the differential diagnosis of a tremor. So what are the big things that uh, have to be on the list of differential of diagnosis of tremor? And, and what are some sort of basic, simple ways we can distinguish those? Well, I think, you know, the first thing that I would say is that not everybody who comes to you with a diagnosis of a tremor uh, has a tremor. So <laughs> the first thing you need to do is determine, you know, that it is truly a tremor, that it's rhythmic, that it's oscillatory. Once you've determined that, um, you want to look at when this tremor is happening and where it's happening in the body. So is it at rest? So when the, the body part is completely relaxed or is it with action when you're using the body part, either holding it out or using it to write or, or, or do some other activity? Um, that's a really important differential because a rest tremor, as we've already learned, is, you know, uh, very characteristic of Parkinson's, uh, Parkinson's disease and Parkinsonisms. Um, whereas an action tremor has a whole other series of, uh, things that we think about. So within the action tremor category, we are thinking about um, enhanced physiological tremor, which actually is just, you know, everybody has a tremor. It's called a physiological tremor. And that comes out. Um, I'm sure uh, a lot of people have experienced, you know, public speaking or doing something that makes them very nervous or having way too much caffeine and having a tremor come out in their voice and in their hands. That's an enhanced physiological tremor. Um, and then there's essential tremor, which is a, uh, gen uh, it's not strictly genetic the way Huntington's is, but there does seem to be some genetic component to this. It tends to run in families. It gets worse over decades of somebody's life. And it's typically a bit slower than enhanced physiological tremor. And uh, people with essential tremor can have some other features like intention tremor or evidence of some a little bit of cerebellar dysfunction, difficulty with tandem walking and things like that, that is not generally found in people with enhanced physiological tremor. And then, you know, when you get somebody with a head tremor, um, 
uh, it's very important to think about dystonia. So dystonia is when there's an abnormal posturing of somebody's head or uh, other body part. And sometimes that can cause a tremor when the, um, you know, the dystonic abnormally contracting muscles are kind of fighting against each other. And that tremor often is a bit more jerky, a little less rhythmic. Um, and it comes along with an abnormal posturing of that body part. Um, so in head tremor, um, you know, the person's head might be turned or tilted, and then they have this jerky uh, tremor that's overlying it, and that differentiates it from essential tremor. Um, yeah. And, and one, uh, one other tremor that comes up sometimes on exams and we need to know about is a rubral tremor. Can you talk through the characteristics of this and how it differs from some of the other tremors you talked about? Sure. So rubral tremor or midbrain tremor, it's also called, is a very... Uh, unique tremor that includes both rest and action components. So it's mixed. It's typically slow. It's typically pretty proximal. So in essential tremor, you're getting a lot of movement at the fingers and at the wrists. And here you're getting some movement at the elbow, uh, the proximal muscles. Um, and, uh, and it occurs after insults to the midbrain area of the um, strokes and things like that. MS lesions can cause uh, rubral tremor. And what's really interesting about rubral tremor is that it can develop months after the initial insult. So, you know, a patient may be um, uh, hospitalized for a stroke in that area and then several months later come back with the onset of a rubral tremor. And rubal tremor uh, gets its name because of the red nucleus. Uh, that's one structure that can be involved. And the red nucleus is sort of in the center of the midbrain. And it's the termination of the outflow tract of the superior cerebellar peduncle. So I think that's why it gets its name. The other term that may come up sometimes on exams, I think, is Holmes tremor. So sometimes the rubal tremor in terms of uh, midbrain tremor, cerebellar outflow tremor, or Holmes tremor. Those are all, I think, synonymous terms. Right. Um, and, and let's talk a little bit about uh, treatment. So we've talked about, we have uh, Parkinson's tremor, and we already know about the treatment for Parkinson's disease, but then there's essential tremor, dystonic tremor, uh, uh, enhanced physiological tremor, and rubral tremor. So what, what are some treatments for these types of tremors? Well, for essential tremor, the first-line treatments are propranolol and primidone. And then there's a whole slew of second-line treatments, gabapentin, topiramate, all kinds of things. Um, but really, the first-line treatments are, are those two medications, propranolol and primidone. And they work okay, um, you know. Um, and so sometimes these patients get to the point where we're actually considering more invasive options as we do in Parkinson's, like deep brain stimulation. Um, in, in essential tremor, the target is different than in Parkinson's. It's uh, the VIM nucleus of the thalamus. And similarly, we sometimes use other ablative techniques like gamma knife radiation therapy or, or uh, focused ultrasound to ablate that same area of the brain. Enhanced physiological tremor, you know, um, uh, often does not require treatment. It's not uh, often debilitating enough uh, to require treatment, but sometimes we do use propranolol for it. And of course, you know, looking at whatever inciting, um, inciting things may be um, 
you know, causing the problem, excessive caffeine, things like that, and, and controlling those. Dystonia in general is very well treated with Botox or botulinum toxin injections. Um, and, you know, often we use that first if we see an element of dystonia with a tremor. Um, and there are other medications for dystonia like muscle relaxants um, and uh, anticholinergic medications. But, um, you know, botulinum toxin is generally first line. Rubral tremor is very difficult to treat. Uh, we sort of throw whatever we can at that tremor. You know, uh, Cinemet uh, or Carbidopa levodopa is actually something that we often start with and try to use. But um, all of the other medications that I've mentioned for all the other tremors, um, including botulinum toxin, are, are sometimes utilized in those patients. I always remember the mnemonic for uh, treatment of essential tremor is the two Ps. Uh, primidone and propranolol. Uh, and then for pharmacological treatment of dystonia, uh, somebody taught me the ABCs. And I think that was anticholinergics. Uh, 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 um, I think the uh, baclofen and then clonazepam, but uh, uh, which all fall into similar categories. So those were some mnemonics that I learned for those. Yeah, I mean, muscle relaxants and, um, and uh, benzodiazepines are both just GABAergic. So you're basically just trying to inhibit the system. Great. All right, let's move on. And uh, uh, briefly, can you talk about uh, REM behavior disorder? This can occur in association with Parkinson's disease and other synucleinopathies, but also can occur in isolation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what residents need to know, the real clinical pearls they need to know about REM behavior disorder? Yeah, so REM, uh, REM sleep behavior disorder is, is when somebody is not paralyzed during REM sleep. So generally, in, in normal REM sleep, you are essentially paralyzed. You know, we, um, uh, during e EEG studies, uh, they'll put uh, they'll put a chin electrode, a chin e EMG electrode that helps determine when somebody's in REM sleep because that quiets down, um, and and that's because of the paralysis that normally happens. And in REM sleep behavior disorder, that paralysis goes away for whatever reason, and these people can thrash around, they can roll out of bed, they can um, you know do. Um, talk in their sleep, um, hit their bed partner, do all kinds of things, um, basically acting out their dreams. And if they're awoken during that time, they will report that they have been dreaming. And this can precede uh, motor symptoms of um, Parkinson's or other synucleinopathies by a long time, years, decades. Um, and, you know, there have been studies that have shown that if you follow these patients for long enough, patients with REM sleep behavior disorder, you know, they, um, there is an, an enormous incidence of conversion to Parkinson's or another synucleinopathy. Um, and, you know, what's really important about, uh, to know about treatment is that usually we start with melatonin that, um, you know, works and it has very limited side effects. And then a second line treatment for REM sleep behavior disorder is uh, benzodiazepines. And generally we use clonazepam because it's one of the longer acting benzodiazepines. Great. Uh, so to summarize uh, what people need to know about RBD is they are, uh, it's somebody's in REM sleep, but not paralyzed. And these are often violent dreams uh, uh, that are acted out and can be harmful to the patient and others. 
Uh, it precedes Parkinson's disease in many cases. Uh, and uh, treatment includes melatonin and, uh, and clonazepam. All right, what about restless leg syndrome? This is something that a lot of people experience, and I think we need to know a little bit about the clinical features and about the treatments for restless leg syndrome. Yeah, so restless leg syndrome, it's, you know, it's very classic. The pattern that you see in these patients is that they, uh, at the beginning of, of the disease, they feel that it's worse in the evening at night um, when they're relaxed, you know, that it's less prominent at other times of the day, that they feel like they, you know, a discomfort in their legs. And that can be described in lots of different ways as tingling, you know, uh, tension, pressure, but basically they report that they just need to get up and walk around. And when they do, the symptoms uh, temporarily remit, but once they try to sit back down or lie back down again, the symptoms recur and this can interrupt somebody's sleep. And as restless leg syndrome worsens, it can start involving more of the body and uh, happen earlier and earlier in the day. And that actually relates to treatment in a lot of ways. So there are different things that we use to treat restless leg syndrome. And, um, you know, the first line is actually a gabapentin or Lyrica. And the reason for that is because some of the other medications that work very well for restless leg syndrome, including levodopa and and dopamine agonists, they work, but then they sort of stop working. Um, and they actually cause something called augmentation, where the restless leg syndrome gets worse over time as you're on these medications. And the higher the dose, the more likely you are to develop augmentation. So, uh, so we generally don't use these medications as first line. And then third line in somebody with very refractory, um, uh, restless leg syndrome, we actually uh, sometimes use opiates. Hmm. What What is the role of uh, of ferritin and iron supplementation? Because that's sometimes that comes up, uh, something that comes up in restless leg syndrome. Absolutely. So that is something that you should always check in a patient with restless leg syndrome, uh, because uh, there is data to support the idea that um, iron deficiency worsens restless leg syndrome. And so if somebody is iron deficient, then we uh, ask them to supplement iron. And our ferritin goals are generally quite a bit higher than normal, um, more in the 75 to 100 range for these patients, um, uh, trying to get them up to that level to help their symptoms. All right. And then uh, other behavioral issues can sometimes worsen restless legs, too much caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, uh, good to advise patients to avoid those sorts of things or at least limit them to reduce the restless leg syndrome. Yes, definitely. And and there are other disorders that are commonly found, like neuropathy is common in patients with restless leg syndrome and, and may be part of, you know, the etiology in those patients. All right. Uh, we're getting near the end, but uh, the, the next major section is dystonia. So uh, do you have uh, an overview of the types of things that uh, residents need to know about dystonia for preparing for an examination? So dystonia is a huge category. You know, there can be focal dystonias that are only in one part of the body, such as cervical dystonia, which is neck dystonia, or um, uh, or uh, blepharospasm, which is 
uh, dystonia of eye closure and um, or they can be generalized and generally the ones that are generalized have some sort of genetic component to them. There are genetic dystonias that start in childhood um, and that, you know, that run in families and and that actually sometimes respond to deep brain stimulation. Ultimately, Um, there are task specific dystonias. So there's a whole slew of these that uh, occur uh, in relation to a a repeated task. Generally, these are people who are doing something more or less professionally or all the time, like uh, people, uh, golfers, for example, professional singers, um, uh, musicians. um, And so they can develop musicians dystonia or spasmodic dysphonia, which is a a dystonia of the vocal cords or or other task specific dystonias that only come out when they're doing a specific task. And, um, you know, we already talked a little bit about some of the treatment strategies for this, you know, it, the more generalized the dystonia is, the less likely that Botox is going to be helpful because you, you know, you really just reach, uh, a peak in terms of the amount of Botox that you can use on these patients. So uh, in more generalized dystonias, we often end up using anticholinergics like uh, trihexyphenidyl, um, muscle relaxants like baclofen or, and or uh, benzodiazepines like clonazepam. And then for the more focal or task-specific uh, dystonias, we often use botulinum toxin, although uh, inciting weakness is is a major barrier. So just to summarize, for generalized dystonia, we use the ABCs, anticholinergics, muscle relaxants like baclofen, and then clonazepam, a benzodiazepine. Uh, and then for focal or task-specific dystonia, botulinum toxin is an option. All right, that's great. Yeah, and I think the residents need to be aware that there are there are a number of DYT syndromes, which are, are the uh, genetic dystonia syndromes, but obviously don't need to have those memorized. Uh, finally, we're going to move on to just a grab bag. So these are some things that come up on examinations and don't necessarily fit into other categories. So one that sometimes people hear about is palatal myoclonus. So what, what does that look like? Oh, so this is a very interesting disorder uh, that is exactly what it sounds like. It's it's myoclonus, which is a jerky um, a jerky movement of a body part um, of the palate. And um, just to give you an idea of uh, of another thing that's myoclonus, hiccups are actually myoclonus. That's diaphragmatic myoclonus. So if you uh, think about hiccups and then think about what that movement might look like on the palate, that's what palatal myoclonus is. And um, it's it can be very annoying for patients because it can cause a clicking in the ears and, and disrupt their sleep. Um, and what you really need to look at are um, is the brainstem in these patients. In, uh, so uh, in the guillain molaré triangle, there is um, uh, the inferior olives and sometimes uh, patients with olivary hypertrophy can develop palatal myoclonus, but also if there are strokes or demyelinating lesions or other lesions in that area, that can induce palatal myoclonus. And then there's a whole category of people for which we can't identify a lesion. Um, uh, and so those are, that's idiopathic palatal myoclonus. 
Yeah, and just so to summarize for residents, Palomyoclonus, if you see this on an exam, uh, there may be a question about the triangle of Guillain-Mollare, and that's a triangle between the inferior olivary nucleus, uh, the dentate nucleus of the cerebellum, and then the red nucleus uh, in the brainstem. So it's a triangle between the medulla, the cerebellum, and the brainstem, and, and dysfunction in any part of that triangle can give you palatal myoclonus. As you said, uh, Sarah, the causes can include strokes, demyelinating lesions, tumors, anything. Uh, and what about Wilson's disease? What do residents need to know about Wilson's disease? Well, Wilson's disease is a is a copper related disorder. It's and it's autosomal recessive, and these patients can have um, only liver involvement, so it affects the liver, um, or they can have um, neurological involvement as well. And the neurological involvement can manifest in a, a million different ways. They can have psychiatric problems, cognitive dysfunction, and they can have a huge range of movement disorders, tremor, dystonia. And so this needs to be something that you think about in um, and, and rule out in a lot of patients that come to you, um, that may have a, a, a wide variety of symptoms, especially if they have LFT elevation. Um, and when you're trying to figure out if somebody has Wilson's disease, what you're going to send is a serum ceruloplasmin, a serum copper level, and also we do a urine copper. And uh, and the gene, and this sometimes comes up on uh, exams, the gene for Wilson disease is ATP7B. So, Sarah, we've covered a lot today. We've uh, gone through uh, basically, I think, the major elements of what, what would be seen on an examination uh, related to movement disorders. And, and uh, I think this is a good foundation for our residents to to dig a little bit deeper and, and read around some of the topics that we've talked about. So I re really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us about this and, and hopefully we can do it again soon. Absolutely.